Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. I'm jazzed to have Julie Daly join me on the show today. Julie has led hundreds of people from all walks of life to awaken the soul, the source of true creative expression within. Her journey began in 2001 when it became clear that a 17-year career as a systems analyst and her new computer science and design degree from Stanford University could not distract what wanted to come forth in her. Two deeply traumatic experiences called her to listen to a stirring intuitive voice. As she followed this voice, she left her career and became a certified creativity and business teacher, which is a course from Stanford Graduate School of Business, and received coaching certification from the Coaches Training Institute and the International Federation of Coaches. She has worked with top teachers and trainers from around the world in emotional intelligence, conscious embodiment, leadership potential, Spontaneous Awakening, The Sacred Feminine, Finding One's Purpose, Healing the Pain of the Past, and Disconnecting from Negative Conditioning. Julie has used her work on creativity and healing in a variety of business contexts, as well as with people who lost loved ones in 9-11 and the widows from 9-11 who wanted to love again, as well as people who live in the beautiful town of Newton, Connecticut, who were directly affected by the tragedy that happened at the Sandy Hook School. When she's not working and teaching, Julie loves dancing the five rhythms, writing prose and poetry, process painting, and spending time with her grandchildren. Julie, thanks so much for the work you do and for being on the show with us today. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Charlie. You've been teaching creativity courses at Stanford for a good while, and you teach writing courses. You teach a lot of stuff around creativity now, and you're really quite a powerhouse at that. Take us back to the beginning. Um, How did you get started um, teaching people about their creative process and really um, becoming a force of nature? Perfect place to start. Uh, I went to Stanford as a non-traditional student at 42 and graduated at 45 with my bachelor's finally. And when I got out and finished, it was just when 9-11 happened and I sort of tumbled into this like um, dark night of the soul because I hadn't really grieved my husband's death yet. And so for about a year, I sort of like tried to apply for jobs. I sort of was going through the motions, but nothing. There was like no light anywhere. It was just, it felt like there was no life. And then suddenly I saw online this teacher training for this course called Creativity in Business. And I saw the word creativity and I was like, oh, it was like the first spark of light I'd seen. And I thought, I have to do this. You know, and this other voice in my head was like, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do? <laughs> but it was like my heart was like, I've got to do this. So I contacted the professor from Stanford who started the course in 1980 and signed up for the teacher training. And that was in 2002. I think we finished in 2003 and then started teaching. You know, it seems odd to have a course on creativity and in the way that we might talk about like applied creativity from Stanford, Right. Um, there's a bit of a mix there for or a bit of a hard for me to understand. So talk to us a little bit about the program, the students that shows up and, and, and what happens with them, um, along the journey. Sure. You know, it was initially in 1980 in the business school and it was, um, 
sort of this anomaly because <laughs> most of the people were, you know, taking business courses. And then here was Michael Ray and his partner, uh, Rochelle Meyer, who would always come in a muumuu and he would have this, they would have the students meditate and they would have them do all these things. And it was like, what are we doing? Um, so from the very beginning, the students it reached were people who were really very much used to being in their heads, very much, very intelligent people, very capable. And the course began to open up this other place inside of them that they either had no idea existed or had a sense of, but didn't know how to go deeper into it. And then when I started to teach it, I teach at the continuing studies department. So I, my students range anywhere from engineers to marketing people to nannies to housewives. So it's a broad range of people. We have 50 people in the class. And last fall, we had people from 14 different countries. So it's, it's an, the only best way I can describe it is we give people tools and uh, practices with which to tap into the source of creativity. So it's not, uh, it's not applied creativity in a way like brainstorming, like how am I going to wrangle this problem and control it and come out with an outcome that I want. It's really going deeper into the creative process, deeper into who you are and entering into the unknown. Because if, if something is truly creative, it is, it comes from the unknown. It's not something we've controlled. It comes out of the mystery. I was reading a quote the other day, and I'm going to butcher it because I didn't prep it for this, but it was basically every child starts an artist, which is funny when you think about it, because if we start as an artist and we start as these little creative powerhouses running around, what happens to us um, that we end up needing to take a course on this natural talent that we actually have is whether we want to talk about it as natural human beings and the way that we evolved, or if you want to talk along the spiritual elements, like the particular gifts that we have from whatever tradition. What, why is it that we, we lose that creative spark along the way? Well, talk to us a little bit about that. There are still cultures and places in the world where people don't lose it, right? So we sort of then begin to look at, well, where are the places we lose it? And most of them are places that have become pretty top-heavy intellect heavy, right? The think, I'm, I'm, I am my thinking machine. So when children grow up in environments like I did, with my father was a, a math and logic major, right? So I grew up in this environment where I remember being this really sprightly, uh, spunky girl, you know, and, and I remember being really in touch with everything around me, knowing that the world was like this amazing place. And then realizing at some point, oh, that doesn't make sense to the people that I want to stay attached to. So I need to now learn how to navigate the world that they understand. And that world is a world of logic and reason and um, the intellect, really. And even more so, it's a world that, where the, the emotions get shut down. And it's a world where if you can't prove it, then it doesn't exist. If I can't see it, it doesn't exist. So you try to talk about spirit. <laughs> I can't see it. I can't prove it. I feel it. But how am I going to navigate the world that you and I know seems to be in charge um, by talking about things like that explicitly? 
So children begin to adapt and they begin to put away all those things they know. And I would imagine you remember doing some of that, right? And and everybody listening probably remembers in some way putting parts of themselves away that didn't seem okay to, to bring out. So the class is really about bringing those parts back out. And I've had students, um, a few years ago, one man from India came up at the end of the 10 weeks and he said, I just want to thank you for taking me back to my roots, my Hindu roots, to my religious roots, to what it was like to be a young boy in India and know that all these things were a part of life. Which to me, it was like, okay, I did my job. <laughs> we're done here. That's right, right. So in some ways, you know, we, we know all these things. Um, but the, the journey really is to regain and reclaim that trust in ourselves and in the unseen world and in, in the mystery of life that kids are perfectly comfortable in. This reminds me of the episode, oh, I forget which one, with Lucy Pierce on um, the rainbow mother and cultivating creativity during motherhood. And what we talked about during that episode was that productivity has become gendered to be very masculine. And in a lot of ways, creativity has become gendered to be feminine as well. And why this is coming up for me is, is that um, it seems that you juxtaposed intellect and creativity as on different arcs. And I think that's an interesting exploration because in many realms, creativity is part of the mental realm. Right, as opposed to part of maybe the spiritual or the emotive realm. I mean, I, I think that's a very simplistic way to look at it. It's a part of all of those realms. It's who we are, right? Right, um, right, right. But I did want to pull back that that what seems to be a juxtaposition to make sure that I didn't hear you incorrectly or... Yeah, no, I'm really glad you brought that up because it did sound that way and that's not the total picture. Um, one of the biggest things that gets in the way of creativity is the voice of judgment. So it's an intellect that has become very judgmental, dogmatic, critical. um, And emotions can be that way too, right? So those things that we learn to stay safe, the places where we shut ourselves down, we many times um, turn those in on ourselves, but we also turn them outside. The voice of judgment is... It's uh, me judging myself, it's you judging me, me judging you, it's cultural judgment, and then the fourth aspect of it is judgment judging the judgment. So once you become aware of the voice of judgment, then you start judging yourself because you realize you're judging, right? So it, more than the intellect, it is the judgmental intellect. The free and clear intellect is a very important aspect of being able to bring creativity into the world because spirit needs this human body to be able to create with, right? So it needs the body, it needs the emotions, it needs the intellect, it needs those to be healthy and working in service to spirit, not um, trying to squash it down. So good clarification. And I wouldn't say, you know, I think, I think it's interesting to think of um, masculine and feminine. Um, I think of it more as yin and yang, not necessarily the, the gendered body, but um, the intellect being more yang and the mystery being more yin. 
um, especially, obviously, those are only true when they're in relation to something else. So you can feel them in relationship right there. And we all carry both yin and yang within us. But, but, but the culture also has, uh, that we live in, tends to think more highly of yang <laughs> than it does of yin. So right there would be a reason why we might not trust creativity if it is something a little bit soft and we can't, you know, amorphous and we can't quite figure it out and we can't pin it down, we can't control it. The interesting thing, again, going back to that episode, is the title of Lucy's book, or the subtitle, was Cultivating Creativity um, in Motherhood. And as I was reading it, it was like, that could have just as easily been cultivating productivity during motherhood. But we know that it would not have resonated with the reader's like nearly as much as creativity. And in that way, like the way in which we are approaching these words has changed a little bit, largely because of things we're talking about, you know, and we can go back to almost all of the traditions that, that show this juxtaposition between yin and yang or the different fundamental forces, like Tao Te Ching, which is, oh, I forget which verse, but it's, you know, it's the, um, basically you can say yang makes the space, but it's the space space of the cup or it makes the structure of the cup, but it's the space within the cup that makes the cup useful um, and those types of things. So you need both the structure and the void or the, the um, intellect and the mystery and those different types of ways to, to make this all come together in an aligned way. Absolutely. And I want to just keep emphasizing the idea of trust. It's like, that's the, the, the biggest thing, I just last year, a year ago, I worked, I commuted to Newtown, Connecticut to work with people that were directly affected by the Sandy Hook shootings. Um, I had worked with 9-11 families for three years back, um, maybe eight, I guess it was 10 years ago. And so we did the same course there. And I was really paying attention to how the people were taking in the practices, taking in the information. We do a lot of experiential exercises, so they're really experiencing themselves. They're beginning to see themselves in a new light. They're seeing each other in a new light. And what I noticed is that what the beautiful thing about this work is, is that it helps people realize that they have everything inside that they need to navigate life. And for people that are in a position like these people were, you know, having gone through something really traumatic, um, to know that you have the capacity to move through what you need to move through, where you find yourself is hugely empowering. And that can't be done from the intellect. Not fully, right? The intellect is a part of it, but you need that greater capacity of uh, a depth of um, sense of self, as well as that alive relationship with life, a living, breathing relationship with life that allows you to respond in a way that is creative rather than forced or trying to control or fearful or dominating. And I think that that's right now it, it, where we find ourselves today as a species. That's extremely important because we need to be able to, again, sense the world around us, sense the earth, sense life. What is it needing? What have we done to it? What can we do to heal this broken relationship? And we can only know that by, by being in relationship with it. 
right? And, and I keep doing this because it's like we feel that through our bodies and our emotions and our, our whole being rather than trying to solve the problems we've created from <laughs> just this. I wrote a post a while ago, um, and it's your body is more than a head transportation vehicle, right? And the basic point is like really when you understand our bodies as part of this brilliant resource rather than this frustration because we've got to do things like poop and sleep and things that are really inconvenient if we just didn't have to do those things then we would be much better people right we would so there's a long history of thinking things like that right and uh, that it's but that's part this body is part of this this brilliant construct that that can navigate the world in these different ways and i'm glad you mentioned that because one of the things that and listeners of the show know that i do this a lot right One of the things I want to keep reminding people is, you know, they look out and they see people who are successful or who are doing things and they've got it all figured out. They don't. None of us have it all figured out. Right. Right. But there's this trust. There's this trust that one. Well, there's there's this sort of idea that like, okay, this might not work. Right. What I'm trying here might not work. And that's okay. Two, if it doesn't work, I'll figure it out. There are very few non-reversible options, right? And we forget that, right? You can start a business and it fail and you go get a job, right? right. You can right. get, you can leave your business, go get a job and come back and start another business. Right. You can choose one career and figure out it's not a fit and go to another career. I mean, Julie, you started, you got your bachelor's at what, 42, 46? 45 when I finished. 45. Um, I was close. Um, and so... There are so many like non-reversible things in life and it gets us stuck because we feel like we have to have this one right, like we got to do this one right thing and that's where the intellect and the critic comes in. And- yeah, and it's an antithesis to creativity, one right thing. And it's interesting because I can be somebody who's can be very much in my head. I can really see things and I can go through steps and I can think I know what it's like to do something just by thinking about it, right? We do that a lot, but we don't really know an experience until we do it. We think we do. The mind is really good at thinking it's done it because the imagination is pretty powerful, but to actually live it is where the joy is. And I think that's what... um, Becoming more, you know, trusting of your creativity allows the body to be successful as well. The body loves to be successful, right? It, it loves to be utilized. And I think we forget that sometimes, but the body can only be utilized if it's in action, right? If, if, there's, if we're using our whole selves in service to what we're doing. And the other piece of that is, you know, when we take a step, we actually get a response back from the universe or from the world or from other people, whatever you want to call it, right? That's how we learn. Oh, right? Take one step, learn. I remember in my, in my coursework at Stanford, I took classes with David Kelly of IDEO. Do you, are you familiar with David Kelly? And he was one of my advisors. And the classes were so great because it really helped. It was like, oh, yeah, just rapid prototype. Rapid prototype. How I mean, we would whip things up and then we would take them out and we'd give them to strangers and say, use this. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, this is great, but this doesn't work. And we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like, boom, you could make something up in 10 minutes and test it out. Yeah, I, they can't see me. Behind me is a whiteboard and I probably need to write more about this. But what if we lived our life as if it were just a whiteboard? 
We put something on there, we erase it later on. If it's really important, we might write it in permanent, but then we know we can come back around it. But, you know, when you think about it, like, that's really, we're here to learn, we're here to grow, and we're here to evolve. And we try something one day, the world changes underneath our feet, maybe it doesn't work, maybe it does work. But Mm -hmm. if we don't approach that sort of judgment place from it's right or it's wrong, that very bifurcated way of the universe, it's like there are a lot of different options. This one worked now, this one might not work in the future, and... It's okay to wipe the whiteboard clean. That's what it's for. It's a plain slate for making new things on. And when we're done, we could do it again. I love that. You should write more on that. I should write more. (laughs) It's great. I'm I'm busy. I'm busy recording um, episodes (laughs) of brilliant people, though. So you know how that goes sometimes. Um, So you have been teaching this course at Stanford on creativity, and then you merged out on your own um, to start teaching it. And I... your flagship program is what becoming a force of nature is that mm-hmm. so talk For to women? us a little bit about that and how you help people become a force of nature yeah interesting i facilitate that um i haven't i've offered it twice now and that last time was last summer we finished so i'm beginning to get set up to offer it again and i've married the the creativity work from stanford with a lot of what I have come to experience and see about the sacred feminine, about the rising feminine, um, that is rising in all of us, not just women, right? That we're all becoming more aware of the feminine. Um, and that women in particular embody because they have female bodies. And so I decided to bring those two things together because the creativity work um, there's four tools, and I wanted to add a fifth tool of the body because the body is such an important aspect of life, of creativity, of how we maneuver through the world. And I got to thinking, well, if I work with women on that, I can really then begin to bring in things like sensuality and sexuality and power and what it is to be a whole human being, a whole woman, and to be in a position of leadership Um, not pushing away your femininity or your power or your sexuality, but realizing it's just one other aspect of who you are and that it actually um, informs your wisdom and informs your capacity to be in relationship in a beautiful way. So bringing together the tools and challenges of the Stanford course along with corresponding wisdom that I've found in my own life through my own experience, um, marrying those two things together. And the response has really been wonderful. I think, um, to, in, in all honesty, I think many of us are nervous and uncomfortable about what the feminine is. You know, it hasn't been such a, it hasn't been part of our culture for hundreds of years and now suddenly it's coming up again what's going to happen when women really start to embody this power what does it mean for men what does it mean for our relationships with each other so becoming a force of nature is really about realizing that we're all forces of nature and that we all are forces with nature right so that we uh, we again awaken that that relationship with nature itself realizing that that we are nature we're not outside of nature. I want to pause there because in the male experience as well, I think there's also a, because of a lot of the changes happening with, with the feminine rising, there's also 
a resurgence, resurgence of like what it, what does it mean to be a healthy, you know, what's the healthy masculine look like? Because we've seen so much of the destructive masculine, right? And I, unfortunately, I think for a period of time, we've seen the very um, weak masculine at the same time as a counterplay to the destructive one. And so it's still coming up with like, what's it mean to be in this way in the world? And so this this goes back to some of the things that we we're talking about, like these these nature these these are interrelated dyads, right? So if something happens to one, something also happens to the other. So if there's a rising femininity, there can't be a rising femininity without there also being a rising masculinity to respond to that. And we live in very interesting times because. You know, we males understand we can't be our fathers and we can't be our grandfathers either. Right. Right. Um, right. The world has changed and there are some reasons why we, we can't be that. But what does that make us? Well, who do we become? So on and so forth. How do we have relationships with these very powerful women in our world? These very powerful mothers and sisters and aunts and teachers and leaders. And right. How does that redefine this whole part? That And how do we support without subliminating. And it really calls for a lot of compassion. It calls for a lot of compassion for each other and for our um, being in a kind of early prototype stage. <laughs> right? I mean, really, it's we don't even really know fully what's being born yet. Something new, new consciousness is being born and we are like, wow, what is this? But we can feel it within ourselves. And I think you're absolutely right. What is the healthy masculine? In the same way, what's a healthy feminine? I mean, there hasn't, there has been a lot of unhealthy feminine for a long time, right? And um, I think as you were speaking, one of the things it reminded me of is how our intellects can go to the place of duality so easily, right? Either or masculine or feminine. And what I would offer from my experience is that again we are we are coming to a place of wholeness whatever wholeness wholeness looks like for me whatever it looks like for you it for me it's a kind of blend of yin and yang what is how do i find the healthy masculine in myself and how do i find the healthy feminine and there, there's these poles and somewhere there's spectrum. Somewhere, somewhere I fall in there somewhere, right? There's not just two types. There's 7 billion people that have some kind of mix of that within them. Um, so if you're looking, you know, for everybody listening, just looking within yourself, you know, where are the parts that you put away that you deem to be not acceptable, um, your shadow parts, what part of that is masculine? What part of that is feminine? And how can you begin to listen to those parts with love? Always with love. Because all of the parts of our psyches, they just wanted love. They just wanted love. And I, that's what I've noticed in my own personal work, is that when I really see what I've done to parts of myself with compassion, there's a healing like nothing I can describe. And, and I think, and I can't remember who wrote this, and I'm, I'm sorry because it's such an amazing quote, but um, he said that the world will know peace when the genders know peace. That basically, it really boils down to that. Um, 
there was somebody that wrote uh, The Gender Knot, Alan Johnson, and he basically said, you know, there's a lot of um, disruptions with different groups of people, but ultimately between men and women, we can't choose to not coexist. We can't go off into our own little communities, right? You know, whether we did that by religion or race or sexual orientation, men and women can't. We need each other for procreation. We need each other for love and comfort. We're families together. So I think that there's that's such an important key is that when we know peace within ourselves between the masculine and feminine, we're going to know it much more outside with each other. Sort of a, a little bit of a <laughs> detour there, but... There is no detour. There's no detour, okay. <laughs> there's only where the water is flowing. And it's actually a very creative act, right? To... to Go on that journey to find wholeness within yourself. Talk about a mystery. You turn and look within. But there's a big mystery. <laughs> who is this? Right? Who, who am I? What am I? What is inside here? That's a huge creative journey to step out into. It's a creative journey, and it's a really challenging one. And in many ways, that's one of the things that gets people tripped up is it's so much easier to blame other people and to look at what they're doing and figure out what works for them and to accept their path and so like be external than to figure out like, whoa, what am I doing? How am I getting in my own way? How am I not having healthy relationships with people? How am I, you know, doing all these different types of things and what, what's going to work for me? And how do I know unless I try it and, and, and fail, right? And figure out that, you know, um, I think it was Danielle Laporte. I know it was Danielle Laporte that said um, the universe speaks in cash flow. And she was talking in a business context. But we can sort of generalize that in that, as you mentioned earlier, we get really good feedback pretty quickly when we try things, right? Whether it's cash flow, whether it's ouch, that hurts, whether it's the awkward look from somebody like, we get, or just a joy that happens, like when we do something that we love to do, like there's positive and negative, there's feedback out there, but there's not feedback in your head. Like there's not feedback in your you know, office in Portland as you're talking to the wonderful Julie Daly, right? You got to go out and, and actually do things in the world to get that feedback and learn and say, you know what, like this might not work for you, but this really does it for me. And that's enough. Yeah, that's so important, you know, um, one of the things in the course I teach is do only what you love, love everything you do. And there's been discussion online about that. Is that a selfish thing when so many people in the world can't do what they love? And I, for me, if you really are in touch with what you love, not what you think you should love, but what really brings you that essential joy, essential joy that is, is of essence itself, um, you're bringing that energy into the world, into a world that really needs it. We have enough people living through anxiety and struggle and suffering. It's almost like we're addicted to suffering as a culture, right? Addicted to, that's the best way I can put it, struggle, suffering, violence. So if you can bring forth that joy, not by forcing it, but by living it, to me, that is offering a huge gift to the world. So when you get in touch with what you love, which what really makes your soul sing, um, that's the benefit of doing the inner work. 
And I think one of the most important things that we can do right now is to feel. To feel. I mean, if we start to really know that we're capable of feeling what we don't, we're afraid we can't feel, that shifts, that's going to shift the world like that because then the heart starts to open and it breaks open. And then we have the capacity to be in relationship, to know how to respond. It's through the heart that that happens. It's not through an intellect that is severed from the heart or the body. I would continue that riff and also say it still turns out that we're either hardwired or it's the way of nature that what we love to do and where we're happiest is when we're in service to other people. Mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and so there's not nearly the theoretical like argument there like if julie does what she loves then that's a really selfless act well she might really enjoy being a catalyst for people's creativity so it mm-hmm. turns out that her doing more of that is the most unselfish thing that she can do yeah yeah absolutely because i think that what you're saying really that love is the universal love it is the flow of the Tao, right? I mean, I'm speaking to the master of the Tao <laughs> from what I know of you. But it, it, that's what it is. It's the universal love. It's that which is the flame of life in every single being. So if we are living that, I mean, that is bringing, it's, it's like fanning the flame of love in the world, Right. And sometimes we get caught up in that do what you love because people's idea of love, if they're not in touch with this deep nature of love, their idea of love is a kind of selfish love. It's an egoic love. Well, it's like people who don't understand the the two different kinds of freedom. There's positive freedom and there's negative freedom. So negative freedom is such that you, Julie, can't tell me what to do, Right. No government can tell me what to do. I don't have to show up to a job. There's no boss that tells me what to do. I don't have to be told what I, Like, that's the negative version of freedom. And negative freedom is really easy to find and really easy to get. Like, quit your job, live on the street. Like, <laughs> right? You'll find out very quickly that you don't have to have a boss. And, but you also don't have the positive freedom of self-actualization to become the person who you can be and to be of service to the world, Right. So when you start thinking in terms of positive freedom towards self-actualization, you end up in these relationships because you can't, for most people, and I realize there are outliers, we're all different, but for most people, we can't positively self-actualize who we're going to be in the world without other people, either because they're part of the journey or because we need them or because they're the recipients, right? Right, right. And so it's really easy to say, like, you know, do what you love means exclude other people, screw them, like so on and so forth. And I think there's a time and place where we need to shut our doors creatively, (laughs) right, creatively. We need to shut our doors and have space of our own. We need to do that because that's just part of the way of things. And when you think about it, many people end up figuring out that when they open that door... They actually want people on the other side of it. And the other half of do what you love is love everything you do, meaning that if you're really going to live a life doing what you love, there are going to be things that support that love. But main, you know, like the more mundane things. So how do you connect those to that passionate love that is the love of, of, for, that comes from source? So both need to be together. Because you have to realize for that, you know, for that positive freedom, um, there are things that um, may feel mundane. But if you, again, tie them in 
to what you love and realize they're very much a part of you being able to do that, then, then you find a way to do them. I think it was Gabrielle Roth. I'm a dancer and she, I do five rhythms, which she developed and she has a quote. Um, do you have the discipline to be a free spirit? Do you have the discipline to be a free spirit? So let's talk about how your creative work is evolving now too. Um, so where, where do you think you're headed? Let's put it that way. Where are you headed now? I am headed. Um, I'm writing a lot. I'm writing a lot of poetry. I'm painting and I've been playing around with a couple books and it's been quite a process because I've literally gone through this experience of writing thinking my book had to look a certain way and I kept fighting why is this book not like coming you know and I've had I don't know how many iterations and I've had people read it I love this you should get it out there and it was like not quite right and I had to find my own way with it. Like one of them is my, it's sort of my life story since my husband died. It'll be 20 years in April that he died. And um, I kept, the, the stories were great. It was all like really powerful stories, but there was this heaviness to it. And I finally started to see, oh my gosh, my own joy hasn't been present. And so I started writing these stories about like, you know, being 42 in my Italian class at Stanford and being the older woman in the Italian class. And I started realizing, oh my gosh, all these wonderful, funny stories happened. And that's what the book has been missing. So I'm opening up as a writer to realize that, um, that I have a capacity as a writer that I didn't think I had. So I've been writing poetry. Um, I'm writing some essays for online magazines. And then I've got a book, um, How to Enter the Creator, Creative Unknown. And then another book called Sacred Flesh. What's the most unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing? Unanticipated. Um, I've got so many ideas and I've got so much stuff. And I, I can only work on one at a time. That's the hardest thing for me. So many ideas, so many creative things, so many directions I could go, and I have to have that cup. <laughs> I have to have the discipline to pick one and finish it. I'm used to being the cup for my clients, and so um, <laughs> it's a well-abused cup sometimes, but that's okay. Like it's, it's needed in that sense, right? Because you have to channel your creativity. You have to you know, pour something into the cup. Because if you just take all the water of your creativity and throw it on the table, you've got nothing, right? Exactly. But you need the cup to pour the water in so that it can be useful. And the, and the thing that I'm learning, and, and you're helping me articulate this in a way I've never been able to, is that within that cup, so let's say it's the book Sacred Flesh, within that cup, my whole being can flow. It's not like, oh, only a part of me gets to go into that cup. It's like, oh, within that cup, everything can show up. And I think that that was sort of one of the misunderstood sort of fears. It's like, oh, my gosh, if I have to limit myself to this, then that means all of this has to, like, it doesn't get any <laughs> airtime. But that's not true. The cup can hold all of me. The cup can hold all of you. It reminds me of, um, I don't know if you've read uh, Susan Scott's Fierce Conversations, um, but I love her voice in the book more than anything else. Um, it's got her sort of sassy, brash, like it, it, but it's her. Like you feel like she's talking to you and she didn't leave a whole lot out of the book, a whole lot out of herself, right? Um, so, you know, a book written with half the soul is half the book, you know? 
And so that that's really important. And that's the benefit, I think, of this disruption that we're in with traditional publishing and everything like this, because we don't have to go to a big tall building in New York and sell a suit that this book is going to be like going to be worth their time. We can create something, you know, um, that really moves people and get it to the people who it needs to move. And we can go from there. Absolutely. Isn't that fantastic? Like you said, we're living in pretty amazing times. We live in amazing times. Um, so that we let our listeners get back to living in the amazing times that they live in, <laughs> what one thing would you want people to take away from this episode or from your body of work? That, you know, going back to what I said, that you have exactly, exactly what you need to navigate whatever comes your way. And that what comes your way is always what you need in the moment, what you need to wake up, what you need to realize who you are. Um, none of it is wasted. I don't think the universe wastes anything. And that everything that you've ever done in your life is you've, it's been a part of, you've needed to do it so that you could ultimately live who you're supposed to live, who you are, right? Nothing's wasted. And you have everything you need. And it's a friendly universe. That's been one of the hardest things for me to reclaim is that it's a friendly universe it's love it's love that's meeting us on every step of the way all righty everyone this is julie daly julie thanks so much for being with us today oh it's been my pleasure okay creative giants so take whatever challenge you're working with whatever project you're working with that maybe has stumped you or stymied you a little bit and ask yourself what resources do you have available to go forward with that project or to address that challenge Become a force of nature. And until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to the Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.